friends up here? I mean, the blue-eyed people are the better people in this room. Oh, yes, they are. Blue-eyed people are smarter than brown-eyed people. <laughs> this, is a, this is a fact. Blue-eyed people are better than brown-eyed people. The blue-eyed people get five extra minutes of recess, while the brown-eyed people have to stay in. people do not get to use the drinking fountain. You'll have to use the paper cups. You brown-eyed people are not to play with the blue-eyed people on the playground because you are not as good as blue-eyed people. On page 127. 127. Is everyone ready? Everyone but Laurie. Ready, Laurie? She's a brown-eyed. You'll begin to notice today that we spend a great deal of time waiting for brown-eyed people. Who goes first to lunch? The blue-eyed people. No brown-eyed people go back for seconds. Blue-eyed people may go back for seconds. Brown-eyed people do not. Don't you know? They're not smart. Is that the only reason? Might take too much. Yesterday, I told you that brown-eyed people aren't as good as blue-eyed people. That wasn't true. I lied to you yesterday. The truth is that brown-eyed people are better than blue-eyed people. They're smarter than blue-eyed people. And if you don't believe it, look at Brian. That's better now. Do you know how to make a W? Okay, write the contraction for we are. Now that's beautiful writing. Is that better? Yes. Brown-eyed people learn fast, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Boy, do brown-eyed people learn fast. Very good. I use Orton Gillingham Phonics. We use the card pack. And the children, the brown-eyed children, were in the low class the first day. And it took them five and a half minutes to get through the card pack. The second day, it took them two and a half minutes. The only thing that had changed was the fact that now they were superior people. Four minutes and 18 seconds. I know we were going to make it. How long did it take you yesterday? Three minutes. Three minutes. How long did it take you today? Four minutes and 18 seconds. What happened? Window. Why? The second year I did this exercise, I gave little spelling tests, math tests, reading tests, two weeks before the exercise, each day out of the exercise and two weeks later. And almost without exception, the students' scores go up on the day they're on the top, down on the day they're on the bottom, and then maintain a higher level for the rest of the year after they've been through the exercise. We sent some of those tests to... Um, Stanford University to the psychology department and they did a sort of an informal review of them and they said that what's happening here is kids academic ability is being changed in a 24-hour period and that isn't possible but it's happening something very strange is happening to these children because suddenly they're finding out how really great they are and they are responding to what they know now they are able to do good morning the clip you just watched is from a famous lesson taught by a woman named Jane Elliott. 
And her lesson was intended to help kids understand the hardship and trials of racism. And it did just that, but it also had some rather unexpected results. Results that got it sent to psychology classrooms and has been studied around the country. The lesson had an unexpected insight into the nature of identity. Not only was the hate she taught easily assimilated by the children, but it actually affected their abilities. They performed better or worse on tests and in flashcard drills based on what they thought their eye color told them about their intelligence. Their identity affected their ability. Identity may be the single greatest driver of human activity. How we work, how we play, how we learn, our ability to understand things, our tendencies as parents, how we navigate relationships, all flows from our identity. Someone very close to me called a while back in desperation, and the conversation started with her telling me how she, where, where she wasn't, you know, where she wanted to be, and she did what most of us do. Um, she did a lot of image management. She wanted to tell me that things were bad, but she didn't want to look like a crazy person. But eventually, as the conversation went on, you could sense that there was this dam of emotion just building up. And in an instant, it broke open, and what came out was this raw, honest, unadulterated uh, stream of conscience, maybe. And I, I remember some of the things she said, and I, and I wrote them down. Because I think what she said ultimately surprised her. She started, I'm hurting, and I'm depressed, and my children, I think, are going to be taken away from me. I cry myself to sleep at night. I cling to abusive relationships. I'm in an abusive relationship right now, Jason. I don't know why I try. Nothing I do is ever good enough. It feels like everybody is against me. I can't hardly even look you in the eye, Jason. Do you have any idea what it's like growing up knowing your dad never loved you? And there was silence. Both of us had to let that soak in. And I wondered how often that went through her head. In that moment, I had to let go of my judgment. I realized that everything I was trying to do to fix her was going to fall short. She didn't need me to try to fix her because, frankly, I didn't know where she was coming from. My father always made it clear that I was loved, dearly loved. With his whole heart, he would tell us again and again, with my whole heart. Her father, he made the opposite message clear. And I've never gotten the whole story, but as best I can tell, her final moments with her father came when she was about 10 or 11 years old. He picked her up at the house, and he brought her, he, uh, brought her an ice cream cone, and then he drove her out into some country roads out in the middle of nowhere. I'm not sure the exact words he used, but he basically told her that he did not love her and that he was going to go and kill himself. He then dropped this little girl off in the middle of these country roads and drove away, not to be seen again. And this 10-year-old girl had a very long walk home to think that over. And somewhere in the back of her mind, 
I think she's still on that walk. She's been thinking about that her whole life. And it's the single greatest driver of her identity. Identity may be the single greatest driver of human activity everywhere. It seems like an especially rough year in world news. And the vast majority of the problems are linked to people living out whatever story, whatever narrative they've been told about their identity. Israel versus Hamas, Sunni versus Shia, liberal versus conservative, this nation versus that nation, black versus white, this religion versus that religion. All around, we see people acting in fear, and paranoia, and competition, flowing from whatever we've been told about identity. The problem is, I think so many of the stories that we are living out are based on false identities. Is the girl I mentioned above nothing more than an unloved daughter? Does that encapsulate her? Should that be the driver of her actions in life? Well, no. But if she clings to that identity, I'm not sure she has a choice. Are the kids from the experiment just brown eyes or blue eyes? Does that encapsulate their identities, their eye color? Should that determine how well they perform on flashcard drills? Because it did. As long as they clung to that identity, I'm not sure they had a choice. I think there's an awful lot of false self going on with us. I see parents doing all kinds of crazy stuff out of a fear that we're going to be bad parents. I see boys and girls starving themselves at worst because they might not be pretty enough. I see people give up their dreams and their hobbies because they might not be good enough. On the flip side, I see people take advantage of other people because they think they're smarter or craftier. Maybe those people deserve it. In youth ministry, I constantly watch kids struggle with whatever story they've been fed. I'm the nerd, I'm the jock, the cheerleader, the loser, the introvert, the extrovert, this and that and on and on. There might be some elements of identity in there, but do those stories encapsulate them? Are these the narratives we should all be living by? Are these the identities from which all our future actions should flow? If we cling to them, I'm not sure we have a choice. But are these our identities? Or could we be acting from false senses of self? If identity is so important, if identity is the single greatest driver, what does the Bible say about our identity? Is there any hope offered? Ashley Carlson is one of our emerging leader interns, and she was with us last year, and we were very fortunate to get her back. Her authenticity, and I mean genuine concern for others, is infectious. She has a desire to learn like few I have seen, and she has a good heart, always seeking to do the right thing. I, I consider Ashley, when I think about her and pray for her, I consider her like, that is what I, that is a role model, the quintessential role model. And parents, you do well to put your kids near her. And she has a story. She has a story of trading out her old identity for a new one. And before we dive into what the scriptures teach about identity, I want you to hear her story and listen to how it has opened up possibilities for her. Let's hear from Ashley. My name is Ashley Carlson, and this is my story. But now, God's message. The God who made you in the first place, Jacob, the one who got you started, Israel, 
Don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called your name. You're mine. Isaiah 43.1 I belong to God. I am a beloved child of God. Sometimes that is really hard for me to believe. I spend so much of my time thinking that I don't belong or that I'm not worthy of that kind of love. I think a lot of that comes from my relationship with my dad. My dad has been in and out of prison for basically my whole life. In fact, he is in prison now. The fact that he has been in and out of prison has caused him to be in and out of my life as well. That's been difficult because I haven't felt like I'm worth staying for. When I was little, I would wait by the window for my dad to come and get me, and he would just never show up. I would fall asleep by the window waiting for him for hours. The drugs have always been more important than me. And when he first gets out of prison and is still sober, I still don't feel important. One time in particular comes to mind. My dad had been asking me to come and see him. Since he lived in Lawrence, it was sometimes difficult to do that. He had a girlfriend he was living with at the time, but I decided I was gonna try and have a relationship with my dad, because even though I'm not always honest about it, it's something I've always desperately wanted. I decided I make sure, to make sure I got to see him that weekend. A lot of problems came up, a ride there, gas money for when I found one, a time that would work for both of us, and stuff like that. I went out of my way to figure out everything that week so that I would be able to go and see him. Even my grandparents were excitedly awaiting my arrival that Saturday. I was supposed to be there at 11, but around 9.30, he called me and told me it might just be best to plan on coming a different day. He said that his girlfriend's daughter's birthday was that evening at eight o'clock, and they had to spend the day preparing for that. I was heartbroken. I didn't understand why he needed nine hours to run to the store for a few things. It seemed obvious that he just didn't want to be with me or spend time with me. I wasn't even worth a small, simple sacrifice that may have not even required much sacrifice at all. I called my best friend Haley crying and telling her I didn't understand why my daddy didn't love me. But I had forgotten something really important. I belong to God. I belong to the God of the universe who loves me and sacrificed everything for me. He says not to be afraid because I am redeemed. God redeems my relationship with my father by being my father. He will never leave me or abandon me. He says that he has personally called my name because I belong to him. My name is Ashley Carlson and this is my story. What Ashley has done here is that she has embraced good news. She has embraced the gospel. She has embraced the good news that she belongs, that all of us belong. She is not an unloved daughter from which all her actions should flow. She is a dearly loved daughter of God, and from that, all her actions should flow. But I want to show you today how Scripture even stretches that concept further. I want to point us towards a rather scandalous hope that we are not just loved, but that we are lovable. God has not just changed his attitude towards us. He has changed us, our very identities, by his work on a Roman cross. We will find this idea being described by Paul in a letter to the Hebrew people. So we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, but before we do, I need to give you a bit of background information. He's going to be referring to something from the Old Testament that you'll need to understand in order to understand what Paul's trying to say. I think we're going to have a picture. There it is. The picture up on the screen is something called the tabernacle. In the Old Testament days, it was a tent they carried with them everywhere they went. 
The whole nation camped around it, and it was very, very important to them. It was the place where God dwelt, right there with them, among them. We created a two-scale version upstairs. Maybe some of you got a chance to go through that last year. God dwelling with the people was very cool. There was also an element that was very scary. You see, God's resting place was above this object that you see here to my left. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. This was kept in a small room inside the tabernacle. You see there's an outer tent, and inside there's a smaller room. That room was guarded by a 15-inch thick curtain. And it's referred to as the Holy of Holies. Whatever is holy, this is holier than that. Also called the most holy place. A symbol of heaven present right there on earth. The place where God dwelt. But here, among his people. The scary part was that not just anyone could go into that tent be near this artifact. Only a high priest, and only once per year, and only if he was pure and repented before God. Just outside the tent, you'll see there's a bowl of water. It's called the laver. And the priests would go there, and they would wash themselves in this water. And they would pray, and they would become very honest and very vulnerable to God, and they would confess all of their sins. They would ask to be cleansed. Otherwise, they risked falling over dead. And God is creating a word picture here. And for them, the word picture being created is not that God is selfish and sadistic. I can see how it looks that way. That God's hiding in some corner and waiting to kill us. But that's not the word picture God is trying to create. God is trying to communicate that he is holy. His goodness and mankind's sin, jealousy, evil, greed, oppression, murder— they don't mix. In a real classical theological statement, something unholy cannot be in the presence of God who is holy. The result is death. The nature of reality does not allow the two to mix. But something with this whole tabernacle was about to change, had changed. And in Hebrews 10, we find Paul trying to explain this to good Hebrew people. Chapter 10, verse 1. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who'd come to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time. And their feelings of guilt, the shame, would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, and Christ will be quoting a psalm here, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you gave me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other sin offerings. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. Continuing to verse 8, Paul will begin to clarify. 
First Christ said you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put a second into effect. Verse 10, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all time. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. When Jesus was crucified, three things happened. And it's kind of like a, a Hollywood blockbuster movie, right? Jesus is hanging on the cross, and first there were earthquakes. Now, they didn't know this at the time, but looking back, we know it's not just the Son of God on the cross, it's God himself hanging on that cross. So when the King of Kings is hanging, I would expect maybe there'd be some earthquakes. Sounds about right. The second thing that happened is that bodies started popping out of tombs, just kind of randomly. Bodies started rising from the dead. And that's weird. But the king of kings is hanging on a cross. So maybe we could expect something like bodies randomly popping out of the ground. But then the third thing that happened is that a curtain is torn in half. And to the Hebrew people that Paul's talking about, that would have been the most shocking thing. Earthquakes, dead bodies raising, meh. The curtain tearing in half? Hmm. That's going to shake the foundation of everything they hold dear. Because how can something holy be opened up for all that are unholy? And Paul's saying something has changed. So what's changed? Is God's holiness changed? No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying it's our holiness that was altered. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all time. We can move with confidence into the presence of God, Paul's saying. The curtain has torn open. We have been remade. Skip down to verse 19. You'll see Paul making this clear. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter, boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. We are not just loved by God. We have been made lovable. We have been made, as difficult as it is to say, holy. And it may be time for us to embrace this reality and let our actions flow from this. Colossians 1 says this, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy 
and blameless as you stand before him without single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard this good news. Like it or not, identity is the single greatest driver of human activity. As long as we cling to the false reality of certain narratives about us, you may not have a choice but to live out those narratives. But there's good news. Each of us has been remade. And now comes the hard, hard work of believing that. Of separating the old self from the new. And what is true? And what is true is that you have been made holy and desirable, desirable to God. And I say the hard work of believing this because I do think it's incredibly hard work. But it's not the kind of hard work we might expect. It's difficult to describe. It doesn't come from self-help or therapy. You can't do like the old Saturday Night Live guys and look in the mirror and say, I'm beautiful, I'm smart, I can't remember it, and gosh darn it, people like me. It doesn't come from that. We can't take attributes and staple them onto our identities. That is hard work too, but I think it bears out very, very fruitless. But there's another way, and it is good news. One of the best reflections of the hard work of separating the old self from the new, of believing God's love, is written in a children's book titled You Are Special by Max Licato, and I'd like to go ahead and read that to you now. You Are Special by Max Licato. The Wemmicks were small wooden people. All of the wooden people were carved by a woodworker named Eli. His workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village. Each Wemmick was different. Some had big noses, others had large eyes. Some were tall and others were short. Some wore hats, others wore coats. But all were made by the same carver and all lived in the village. And all day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each woman had a box of golden stickers and a box of gray dot stickers. Up and down the streets, all over the city, people spent their days sticking stars or dots on one another. The pretty ones, those with smooth wood and fine paint, always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint chipped, the Wemmicks got dots. The talented ones got stars too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads or jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words or could sing pretty songs. Everyone gave them stars. Some women had stars all over them. Every time they got a star, it made them feel so good. It made them want to do something else and get another star. Others though could do little. They got dots. Punchinello was one of these. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, the others would gather around and give him dots. Sometimes when he fell, his wood got scratched, so people would give him more dots. Then, when he would try to explain why he fell, he would say something silly, and the Wemmicks would just give him more dots. After a while, he had so many dots that he didn't want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in water. And then people would just give him another dot. In fact, he had so many gray dots that some people would come up 
and give him one for no reason at all. He deserves lots of dots, the wooden people would agree with one another. He is not a good wooden person. After a while, Punchinelle believed them. I'm not a good wimmick, he would say. A few times he went outside. He hung around other wimmicks who had lots of dots. He felt a lot better around them. One day, he met a wimmick. It was unlike any he'd ever met. She had no dots or stars. She was just wooden. Her name was Lucia. It wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers. It's just that the stickers didn't stick. Some of the wimmicks admired Lucia for having no dots. So they would run up and give her a star. But it would fall off too. Others would look down on her for having no stars, so they would give her a dot. But either way, it didn't stick. That's the way I want to be, thought Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So he asked the stickerless wimmick, how did she do it? It's easy, Lucia replied. Every day, I go see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why? Why don't you find out for yourself? Go up the hill, he's there. And with that, the wimmick who had no stickers turned and skipped away. But will he want to see me? Punchinello cried out. Lucia didn't hear. So Punchinello went home. He sat near a window and he watched the wooden people as they scurried around giving each other dots and stickers. It's not right, he muttered to himself. And he decided to go see Eli. He walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and stepped into a big shop. His wooden eyes widened at the size of everything. The stool was as tall as he was. He had to stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench. A hammer was as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here. And he turned to leave. Then he heard his name, Punchinello. The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come, let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You know my name? The little woman asked. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up. Set him on the bench. Hmm. The maker thought, as he looked at the gray dots, looks like you've been given some bad marks. I didn't mean to, Eli. I tried really hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me, child. I don't care what the other women think. You don't? No. And you shouldn't either. Who are they to give stars or dots? They're women just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think. And I think you are pretty special. Punchinello laughed. Me? Special? Why? I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My paint is peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on those small wooden shoulders, and spoke very slowly. Because you are mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never heard anyone look, never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker. He didn't know what to say. Every day, I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no marks, said Punchinello. I know, she told me about you. Why don't the stickers stay on her? The maker spoke softly. 
because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you more. The more you trust my love, the less you care about those stickers. I'm not sure I understand. Eli smiled. You will, but it will take time. You have got a lot of marks. For now, just come see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the women walked out the door, you are special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. When we sit at the feet of Eli, he tells us who we really are. That's why Lakeland pushes solitude and silence. It's not that we don't wish there were magic words or some solid advice or just the right self-help scheme that we could give you. It's just that the end, in the end, those things do not work. Fixing our actions doesn't go very far. We must instead start with our identities. That's why we have opportunities to retreat. All of us must engage in the difficult work of sorting out the old self from the new, the false self from the holy, redeemed creation that you are. That can only be done at the feet of Eli because that is difficult to believe. To embrace your new identity, though, is life. On the other hand, Paul will eventually go on to say that to embrace your false self is death. If you lean into destruction, you will find destruction. If you choose to live in the way of Jesus, which brings life, you will find life. But either course will flow out of your identity, false or true. And Paul wants to remind you that your true identity, the real you, is that of a holy person by the blood of the covenant. In Hebrews verse 29, Paul says this, just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. We might all do well to change our self-talk. Instead of saying, yep, I'm a sinner. And letting whatever reality unfold from that narrative, perhaps we would do well to say, wow, I have been remade. Sit at the feet of Eli and ask him to tell you who you are, who you really are. I think he has a gospel for you. He has good news. If it seems unfair, too easy, or downright scandalous, you are probably on the right track. The work of the, of the cross is indeed scandal. And this scandalous work should not just affect how we view our own identities either, but how we view the identities of others. Sure, we see people doing terrible things all around us, but do we dare call them monsters? Dare we question the new identity offered them by God as it's been offered to us? 
Haley Roach is another one of our emerging leader interns. It's because of her that we have an internship at all. She's magnetic, she's our recruiter. Haley is also a brilliant writer. And she has this uncanny ability to reflect on the world around us, to see things and name them by their true identity. She can see the work of God and reflect on that. And I had her to come up to read one of her reflections because as we dive into understanding this more, I think she just says it way better than I could. She wrote it during a time when we were studying identity in the high school group. We tasked our emerging leaders with putting together a similar talk as you've just heard. They met and they planned and they thought they had something pretty good in place. But then on the Wednesday of the fuel, on the day we were gonna do the talk, they called for an emergency meeting. They wanted to rework their talk because something had happened. And Haley is here to read you that story. This week at Youth Group, our topic with the high schoolers is how God views us. The message we wanted to get across to them is that the only thing that defines us is God's opinion of us. Who we are at the core of our being has nothing to do with anything we have done or will do. We are good, we are valued, we are delighted in, and we are worth dying for. We are holy. It is no little thing to be holy. To think we are holy is quite a thought. It's almost uncomfortable to think. That's why Ashley, Amanda, and I decided we wanted to end youth group with having everyone reach under their chair and find a piece of paper taped there. Then one by one, we would have everyone read what their paper said aloud. I am holy, I am holy, I am holy. That's what we would hear over and over again. Maybe it would be awkward or weird or cheesy, but we wanted all the high schoolers to speak those words. We wanted all of them to really dance with the statement that they are holy, despite what anyone has told them, despite anything they have done, despite whatever they feel. To us, this seemed, in that moment, a rather simple thought, that we are holy. Two hours later, we found out that a friend of ours, Joey, had gotten in a car accident, and the other man involved, a husband and a father of two, was killed. Joey's blood alcohol content was three times the legal limit an hour after the accident had happened. Joey drove drunk, was going 20 to 45 miles over the speed limit, crossed the highway division line, hit another car, and now a woman has no husband and their kids have no daddy. When I read the news stories over and over again, the weirdest thing was that they kept calling Joey a man, and all I kept thinking was, he's only a boy. Derek, one of the people I love most in the world, was best friends with Joey for years. This morning while I was talking to Derek, he said, Joey has to live with everyone thinking he is a malicious monster when he's not. What I said back was, he's not a monster. That's what I said, but last night my heart broke for the family grieving the loss of the man Joey killed. Last night, I thought a million times about how, self, how selfish Joey was and how disgusted I felt. My initial thoughts had nothing to do with Joey being holy. This morning, I considered telling Derek his friend was delighted in, loved, important, but I couldn't say it. I definitely couldn't bring myself to say that Joey was holy. But less than 24 hours ago, I was 100% ready to stand in front of a bunch of high schoolers and tell them they could never do anything to separate themselves from the thing that defines them. God's personal love, admiration, and devotion towards them. I was ready to tell the high schoolers that because of God's unconditional, unwavering love, they are indeed holy. Now I don't know how to tell them that. Are we really holy? Can such an absurd thing possibly be true when we are so broken? Because at the end of the day, Joey's not the only one whose holiness I question. I'm wrestling with my own. 
I thought that tonight's talk on how God views us was just an easy, feel-good, obviously answered topic, but it's not. This is not a small thing. The loving, perfect, faithful, righteous God of the universe looks at us small, fearful, murderous, selfish, broken creatures and says, yes, you are holy and I love you. Why? We kill, we cheat, we lie, we chase empty things, and then we so often blame him for whatever is wrong in our lives. Yet he thinks we are holy. He still chooses to choose us every single day. I know that this morning when I woke up, regardless of if I listened or not, God whispered in my ear, Haley, my precious child, I choose you, you are mine. I also know that when Joey woke up this morning, God whispered in his ear, Joey, my precious child, I choose you, you are mine. I know he will whisper it again tomorrow morning too, in giddy anticipation that this may be the morning he will be heard. This will never add up, but it will always be true. I don't know why or how, I just believe with everything in me that it is. The only way we can ever be holy is if we were created and taken care of by a God who is love. We are all the main characters in a scandalous, irrational, romantic love story. We are holy because we belong to a God who overflows with mercy, a God whose capacity for love and forgiveness and compassion can never be measured or comprehended. I know that I will continue to wrestle with thoughts that I am holy, that Joey is holy. I just hope that I can also take time to rest in the thought that we are holy, that I can really embrace it. I hope that I can act, think, and be like a holy person is, and that I can treat and love everyone, despite everything, like they are holy too. Identity may be the single greatest driver of human activity, but there is a good news. There is a hope offered. You and I and all who have come through these doors have been remade, and we can live that. And when you forget, when you need to be reminded who you really are, sit with Eli again and again and listen to what he has to say. I want to close with a clip by Brennan Manning that impacts me every time I watch it. It reminds me who I really am, despite the garbage. It reminds me who I really am. And I can't deliver its message any better, so we'll let Brennan Manning take us home, and then I'll return for the benediction. In the 48 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus, in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, and then literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question, and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? that I long to hear the sound of your voice. The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I try to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are gonna have to reply, <clears throat> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. 
I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only gonna be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image, and he wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never gonna be as you should be. Let's go ahead and rise for the benediction. The benediction comes from Colossians chapter 3. Paul says this, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Go and embrace your new identity. Put away shame and know that you have been remade. Go in peace. <laughs>